Welcome back to this study of church history presented by Dr. David Stafford. This presentation will go through the history of the church founded by Jesus Christ on the mountain. We want to thank everybody for coming out and especially tonight with the rain and the kind of a messy evening, but we appreciate you coming. As we closed last week, we went through the foundation of the church and we looked at um, the work of Jesus as he formed the church on the mountain. And it's um, today that I'm hoping tonight that we can get into some of the um, other history and get started on, uh, on the history after, after the scripture. Um, we're still on lesson one handout, and we broke and stopped there at church secession, and I thought we would just pick right up there and um, uh, uh, where we stopped last week. And, you know, for 2,000 years, the church has been in existence, and it has had a linkage all through those years. Now, a lot of the Protestants and a lot of the religious societies of today will tell you one of two things. Either it was preserved by the Catholic Church or that it went out of existence and through a Reformation it had to be reborn or reformed or something to that extent. Well, that's not the case. All the way from the time that Jesus established his church on the mountain, there have been local bodies that functioned and practiced in the New Testament fashion that Jesus had established and instructed them to work and to labor um, without compromising to the will of the Catholics and not compromising to the will of the world but holding steadfast to the whole gospel that was delivered to the saints and preaching and teaching what thus saith the Lord. And it is important for us to realize that when we read history, um, even some of the works that go by the name Baptist history, they give a fairy tale version of that and they say that Baptists came from England in the 1600s and that's when they first decided to immerse people and that's when Baptists started. No, that's a lie. That's not true. Or they go and they say Roger Williams was the first Baptist and he was here in the United States. Well, I'll tell you that Roger Williams was never a Baptist. He was never one of us. He was never of us. He was something completely different. But when we look at history and we know through God's word and the gospel and the promises that he gave us, we know that there has been churches all through time that hailed to the truth. And as we go through this study, we're going to focus on them and we're also going to illuminate and look at what the Catholics and what the other organizations of the world that say they are churches were doing parallel to us. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed in this. Church secession does mean that there has been um, churches all through time, 
And authority has passed from one church to the next church to the next church. Um, some of the things that we have kind of preconceived notions on um, are how that authority is, how that authority is passed from one body to the next body. Now, the key element of Baptist secession is that when a church is established, when a church is set up or organized, authority is passed to it. That's the key. Authority being passed. Now, how that authority is passed, we can go back in our history and when we start reading, we find that it's not always as pretty and as clean as what we think it is in our head. Um, oftentimes, and I'm just going to hit this head on, oftentimes we will hear people talk about, our own people say that in order for a church to be scriptural, they have had to have been an arm of a sister church and then organized into a Baptist church. Well, I, I'm going to be just blunt and honest. If that's what has to happen, we're in trouble because that hasn't always occurred that way. Even in the churches that are still functioning, that are still like us in Macon County, that's not the way they were organized. And the key is authority being passed. And when we look at our history and not going by uh, Pendleton's manual or anything like that, but going back and looking at the history of our churches, the churches that we know practice salvation, they have protected um, the, the ordinances, they have a, a, that are like us, basically. We know that there are basically five ways that those churches have been organized. They're all very similar. And it's not like we're going to be talking about five drastically different ways. But the first way that we hear the most about is an extended arm. And an extended arm was made common by the separate Baptist and Shubal Stearns, who we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, who was a man that was saved during the Great Awakening, during the Great Revival, and he was a Congregationalist. He realized that he did not have scriptural baptism, and he sought it out. Through his searches, he found scriptural baptism in the Baptists. He presented himself to a Baptist church. He gave his testimony. They baptized him. He was called to preach, previous to being baptized, actually, and he began a ministry that sprang forth and spread like we have no comprehension today. From one church that eventually came down and settled in um, Rudolph County, I think it's Rudolph County, uh, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, from that one church, we will find that hundreds were organized. One of the men that was a charter member of Sandy Creek was Daniel Marshall. Daniel Marshall was um, Shubal Stern's brother-in-law. He was married to Shubal Stern's sister, and he was a preacher, 
And he went out from Sandy Creek and preached at a lot of different stations, preaching points, throughout the rural community there. And one of those was at Dan River, and he went there and he was preaching, and over time there was enough that were there that had gotten saved that Sandy Creek said, you know, there's enough of you here that we're going to establish an arm. So Shubal Stearns, under the authority of Sandy Creek, went out there and baptized those people that had a profession in Christ, and they became members of Sandy Creek. Okay? And over the next several years, they met there at Dan River as an arm of Sandy Creek Church. They also ordained Daniel Marshall so that he could receive and baptize candidates as they came in. It worked the same way there as it did at Sandy Creek. He would open the doors of the church. Someone would present themselves, give their testimony. The church that was there would vote, and then they would baptize them. But they didn't become a member of that place because it wasn't a church. They became a member of Sandy Creek. Okay? Over time, the number of people that were attending grew, and Daniel Marshall decided that under the leadership of the Lord that he felt that they had grown enough to become an independent Baptist church. So they went to conference at Sandy Creek. There's evidence of this. They had a conversation. Sandy Creek voted to organize that arm into an independent body. They set up a presbytery, they went out there, and Sandy Creek placed those members that professed that they wanted to be members of Dan River Baptist Church, set them in order as a church. Okay? Now, that is the cleanest and prettiest way. I'm not saying it's the best way, but it's the way that is the simplest to recognize who their mother church is. There's no question with Dan River that Sandy Creek was their mother. Sandy Creek, granted, all, all of the members had been members of Sandy Creek, and Sandy Creek seated the presbytery and organized them into a church. Okay, And that is how a church is organized by extended arm or branch. Sometimes they would extend an arm and it never would become a church. It would just constantly work as an arm and over time it would either fall apart and people would lose interest or they would just work that way, okay? The second way is letters for the organization of a new church. We're going to go back to Shubal Stearns. When Shubal Stearns left the church there in Tollard, Connecticut, he knew that he and his family were going to travel, and the church there gave him letter, gave all of his family and those that were traveling with him letters in hand to be placed with another Baptist body of like faith and order or to or go into the organization of a new church, okay? So they gave them letters specifically for the purpose of him organizing a body 
when they got wherever they decided to settle. When they got there to Sandy Creek, that's what they did. They had good letters in hand. They had authority from the church that they, from Tollard that they had come from. And Shubal Stearns was an ordained minister, and he organized that group of people into a Baptist church. Okay? Not everybody that went into that church were members of Toland because Daniel Marshall and his wife, they were members at Mill Creek in, I'm thinking Virginia, but we'll correct that if it's wrong when we get on down into her history. But they also had letters in hand stating that they could place it anywhere that there was a body of like faith and order, okay? Now, that church is just as legitimate, just as organized as Dan River, even though it never functioned as an arm of another body. Y'all with me? I don't see anybody grimacing, so we must still be good. All right. The next one gets a little bit more uncomfortable for us in a way, and that is by presbytery. And I'm going to, each one of these, I'm going to try to give you a historical example in brief to explain it. But presbytery is one of two things generally. Either there is a group of people that have come into a community, and we have to think back as we look at this, because we're talking about when this was happening most was during the frontier days of Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina, because I know in our minds we think of this area as being settled. In the 1840s, 1800s, 1840s, all the way up to the 1860s, Tennessee was a rough and rugged place. It took months to get here. And when you got here, you might not see anybody for another 20, 30, 40 days or a year because it was that rugged, that dispersed. So when people of the Baptist persuasion would leave their home churches in Virginia and South Carolina and North Carolina, they would leave with a letter in hand. Because remember, there's no communication. We don't have internet. We don't have cell phones. We don't have landlines. We don't have a postal service. There's no way to communicate 300, 400 miles back to your home church. So they left with letters in hand. And a lot of times these letters were just what we today would call a suitcase letter, meaning that it was just open and it was a recommendation that we, have, we are releasing this brother when he places this letter with a light faith and order. Okay? And sometimes this would happen when there were brethren that got together and they were here and they had never been Baptists before, but they start hearing Baptist preaching and a revival breaks out and they begin to get saved. And they realize that they need baptism and they look for a source. Okay? That's what happened at Brush Creek Baptist Church in Smith County. Brush Creek in Smith County is one of the, it is the oldest church in Smith County. But there was a fella 
by the name of Cantrell Bethel, who moved into the Liberty community of DeKalb County, and he was a lost man. But there were some preachers there that began to preach repentance and faith. He heard their preaching. He got saved. Other people got saved. They began to meet together in just devotion meetings. And there were no Baptist churches close to them. Nowhere. But Brother Cantrell heard of two things. He heard of a church called Union, which is Old Union in Bowling Green. And he heard of two preachers. One named Alexander Devon and the other one named John Hightower. So one day he gets up and this band of people had already decided that they wanted scriptural baptism. So he rides from Liberty Community in DeKalb County all the way right outside of Bowling Green, Kentucky to find Alexander Devon and John Hightower. He finds them. He talks to them and he tells them that we've got this group of people down here that need baptizing. They baptize him into union and John Hightower and Alexander Devon ride back. Uh, they were actually a few days later. Brother Cantrell leaves Bowling Green, starts back to DeKalb County and on the way home, the Lord did something that several of us here have experienced. He said, Brother, you're going to preach my word. And I'm sure Brother Cantrell did the same thing that all of us did and said, no. But he gets home, tells them that the Lord has called them. When Alexander Devine and John Hightower gets to Smith County, they baptize the rest of the people that were there, and they organize them into a church. Okay? Now, today we would hear this and we would get the back, the hairs on the back of our neck would begin to kind of quiver because these men didn't get permission from Union Church before they went down there to do this. And the reason they didn't was because at this point in time, most churches had liberated their ordained help to seat in organizations, seat in ordinations, and to do lots of things that we wouldn't let our preachers do today. But because of communication, they gave authority to their preachers to do this. So they called, this group of people called this presbytery, and the presbytery came down and organized them into a church. From Brush Creek Church, we have many churches in Middle Tennessee and even up in Kentucky that have direct lineage back to Brush Creek Church in Smith County. Okay? By association. Now this is one that I still kind of grimace about. But it is probably in our history it is probably one of the more common ways that churches were organized. Because our older brethren used to give a lot more authority to associations 
than what we're comfortable giving today. Um, one of the best examples of this in modern day is Defeated Creek. We know that Defeated Creek um, was organized after the great rupture of 1830. 1830 was the rupture over um, Primitive Baptist, the Primitive Baptist uh, anti-missionary rupture that occurred all across the southeast. There was a minority members of Defeated Creek, and we're going to give you this in brief, who wanted to stay in the United Baptist. Uh, they were actually members of Old Salt Lick. Let me back up. Old Salt Lick was the church they were members of. The majority of Old Salt Lick had declared non-fellowship with uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and the Tennessee Baptist Convention, and the minority wanted to stay in the United Baptist camp. So the, the minority showed up at um, Concord's association and requested Concord to organize them into a church. The association at Concord appointed brethren to go and organize Defeated Creek into a church. And those brethren are names that resonate with us. It was John Wiseman, William Bransford, William Flowers, and Jonathan Wiseman were the ones that the association appointed to meet with them at Baghdad, which is the little community, we would call it difficult today, and organize them into a Baptist church. And that's what they did. It was them and then a couple of more showed up. I think E.B. Haney showed up and two or three others. And they organized Defeated Creek into an independent body by association. The association is what did it. Now, that was not uncommon. It also was not uncommon for an association to have an appointed missionary who would go out and would preach and would do work on behalf of the association but remember, this is what we always have to remember. These preachers were still subject to their home churches. And their home churches, whether directly or indirectly, implied or they either gave them specifically the authority to go do it, or they gave them the authority to go do it because that's what they gave all of their ordained preachers the right to go do. Okay? An organization, which brings us up to organization by missionary. And most of you have heard of the old regular Baptist, Welsh Neck, Welsh Track, those groups of churches. Those groups of churches organize many, many dozens and dozens of churches through missionary. Um, some of the, the names that we know are John Gano. John Gano was, uh, well, it's, is known in history as being a, a powerful Baptist preacher. John Gano was a missionary who was sent out from his home church and from the association just to go out and to preach. And if he was, and even to baptize into his home church, but they gave him authority to hear testimonies and to baptize people. Now, I'll just tell you, 
if some of our ordained help asked for that, we would have to really scratch our head and think about it before we did it. There are still situations today where that may be possible. If we have a mission somewhere and we're going far off in, for example, Guatemala, and we began to find that lots and lots of people are, are getting saved in Guatemala and they're having testimonies and they're beginning to set up and have um, um, private devotions amongst themselves and they're beginning to organize amongst themselves to worship. Siloam Church could give Brother Greg the authority to go down to judge their testimony and to receive them by baptism. Now, most likely what we would do is say two or three brethren go with them, and so Brother Greg's not having to boot all the responsibility. But there are still situations today where that is plausible, and there's nothing wrong with it as long as the church gives the authority. Y'all with me? So in all of these, the key that we have to remember is that authority is passed from one church to another in some form or fashion. Now, what we cannot do, if five or six of us start meeting in my garage and we decide one day that we just want to be a Baptist church and we stick a sign up out front that says Podunk Baptist Church and we start functioning as if we were a church, that doesn't make us a church because no authority has been passed and it doesn't matter whether everybody there is an ordained deacon or preacher that doesn't matter if there has been no authority passed to them okay so when we go through these we're going to try to bring up situations as we look through this and point out which of these that they were organized under um, brother Michael did an article in the landmark uh, a couple of issues back talking about Paul Palmer and um, a group of English General Baptists who set up all of these Baptist churches. There were about 18 or 19, 20 of them. And none of them had scriptural baptism. None of them had scriptural organization. And um, the Philadelphia Association sent preachers to go out to these churches to preach to them, to listen to their testimonies and see who was saved, who wasn't saved, find out who baptized them to see if they had scriptural immersion, and if they didn't have scriptural immersion, to baptize them, and then organize them into a regular church. Um, and that was also by missionary. Okay? And I hope that didn't, I hope everybody followed that. Once again, the most important thing when you look at is authority is passed from one body to the next body. That's what we're looking for, okay? Also in secession, we know that if we have had Baptist secession all the way from Jerusalem to Siloam and to Middle Tennessee, we know that that means that there has also been ordained men all throughout history, okay? Now, I, I want to be clear on this, that I am not saying that we have an apostolic secession. 
Apostolic is what the Catholics claim they have. What they claim their secession on is a secession of popes all the way back to Peter. And they say there's been an unbroken chain of pastors of the Church of Rome all the way today, and that's what their secession is based on, okay? And that the Pope is still an apostle, and he's got a title three and a half miles long. But that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that through all time, there has always been ordained men to baptize and to help the church in the function that the church has, that worked under the authority of the church. The other thing, if we believe in church secession that has to exist, is a secession of baptism. That being that all of our baptism could be traced back, if we had records, all the way back to John the Baptist. Okay? Now, records aren't there because they were burned, they were destroyed, uh, 2,000 years. We're lucky if, if in your own genealogy, if you can run back five generations, you're pretty lucky. So trying to trace back 2,000 years of baptism is, it's there, but you're not going to find a record of it. Okay? What I mean by a, a secession of baptism is, for example, I was baptized by Kenneth Woodall. Kenneth Woodall was baptized by Cal Gregory. Cal Gregory was baptized in all the way back, and in that lineage you get all the way back to Shubal Stearns and those churches, okay? Um, and that's the way it is, the way it has to be, is that there is a secession of ordained men that this man was baptized by this ordained man who was baptized by this ordained man, all the way back to the baptism of John, okay? And I know we're going through this very quickly, but I'd like to uh, try to get through as quickly as we can with this portion. Um, the next thing that I want us to look at, simply because it plays such an important role in looking at Baptist history, is the dreaded words, alien immersion. Um, alien immersion is any baptism that is missing one of the four components of baptism, whether that be administrator, authority, candidate, or mode. Um, administrator. If we go to the 1920s, we can go back to something, I'm trying to use examples here that may be a little bit fresher in people's mind. Um, Peyton's Creek called a pastor that did not have scriptural baptism, and he baptized people into the membership of Peyton's Creek. That baptism, everybody that he baptized had alien immersion. Even though they were submerged fully, they were saved, Peyton's Creek had authority to baptize them, but the administrator had never received scriptural baptism. So those are alien, okay? 
Then we go into authority. Now, I have there the word Cato. And if you all know what Cato is, Cato is the white church, white church building that has the name Dixon's Creek. Dixon's Creek had a big split, and some of the members just took off and started meeting on the other side of the creek and called themselves a church, okay? Through the years, they have had ministers who were scripturally baptized and were scripturally ordained, okay? And those candidates were saved and they were fully submerged in water. But what was missing? What was missing is that congregation had no authority. They were never a church. So they did not have authority to baptize. Okay? So everybody that was baptized by that congregation has alien immersion. All right? There's no way around it. Okay? Secondly, or thirdly rather, if a lost person presents themselves to the church and we baptize them or we immerse them, they're not scripturally baptized. This happens all the time. That people become confused, they think they're saved, they present themselves to the church, the church immerses them. A few years later, they realize I'm lost or they realize I got saved since I was baptized. They come back to the church, they tell the church, we open the doors so they can give their experience of being saved. We vote on them again, and then we baptize them for the first time. Because the first immersion, the first dunking, wasn't good because they hadn't been saved. Okay? And there have been a lots of situations through the years where we have had problems occur in our churches because someone has come and said, you know, when I got baptized, I wasn't saved. And for whatever reason, they were never rebaptized. And then a few occurrences where people after, or a man who got saved after he was baptized becomes a preacher and is baptizing and then realizes, I'm not saved, or I got saved after I was baptized, so I don't have scriptural baptism. And then we have to back up and rework all of that. Because everything that he did wasn't right. Because he didn't have scriptural immersion. So we have to back up and fix that as we go. Okay? And of course, mode. If you ain't dumped, you ain't baptized. Okay? Period. Sprinkling, pouring, any other way you want to try to baptize someone other than full immersion in a watery grave is alien and doesn't count. And you know, I've heard people say, well, it was pretty close. Maybe one of these was off, so they're pretty close. Well, as my third grade teacher used to tell us in math problems, math and baptism, it ain't horseshoes and hand grenades. It's all or nothing, okay? You either have all four 
and you have baptism, or if you're missing one, you don't have baptism. Okay? And the world doesn't like that, and it is offensive to a lot of people, but the Scripture tells us there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and it is the church's responsibility to make sure that the baptism that we are holding members on is legitimate and scriptural. Um, I, I think it would be a very good practice today when a member joins by letter or credit of a letter to ask them to tell us who baptized them and under what church's authority. Because today there's so much issue amongst Baptist churches and what I like to call fringe churches, that we have to be guarded. So I, I think it is a very good practice and one that we need to consider of when someone joins from a sister church asking them who baptized you and under what church's authority. Just so that we can be clear and know that their baptism that we're receiving into our body is good. Okay? Now, this next one is the one I was honestly been a little bit nervous about because we have accepted this and been taught this and has seen this for a very long time. If you'll look on the very back page of your handout, there is a church-by-church -church secession from Dyersburg or Dyer, Tennessee, all the way back to Polycarp and John was with Jesus on the mount. Fourteen links. Y'all see that? Okay. When I first decided that I wanted to study Baptist history, I was a, a, a member of a church, not here, and I had expressed an interest to some of the deacons and some of the older guys, and the first thing I was given was a sheet of paper that looked like this, and it started with that church and went all the way back to Jesus, and they said, this is our lineage. And of course, I was 19, 20 years old. I said, well, that's great. I'm so glad that I've got that, and I was excited. And on that paper, it also had, a, 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 this one has it as well, links to other two um, references to where each one of those links came from, okay? Well, I had already collected a pretty good little Baptist history, and when you start trying to run down these references, guess what? They're not there. Either there's no such book, or you can search the book from front cover to back cover, and you're not going to find Archer Flavian anywhere. You can search any history book you want to, and you're not going to find them. This started in 1922. April 1922 of the Baptist Messenger is the first place I could find it. And that is an Oklahoma Baptist periodical, and it was this very one, only it said Dyersburg, Tennessee, rather than Dyer, Tennessee. Okay, And then in 1951, Roy Mason wrote a book entitled The Church That Jesus Built, and he put the same linkage 
in His book. And from there, our people have just said, oh, where it's in this book, it must be right. But it's not. At all is the issue. Now, when you go on our church's websites, it's not uncommon to see, it's not on ours, so I'll use us as an example. We don't have a web page. But if we had a web page and you went on there, a lot of our churches would say, Silo Missionary Baptist Church came from Testament Baptist Church, came from Salem Baptist Church, and they'll do three or four legitimate jumps, and then they pick up somewhere on this list. But unfortunately, the somewhere you pick up on this list, and I'm going to use a very harsh word to express how important it is to know this, is a lie. That's all it is. Now, our churches, I, don't, I do not believe that any of our churches present this to deceive anyone. That's not what they're trying to do. They think that they're being honest, but this is a forgery, and it is not right, because you cannot go through any history and find Lima Piedmont Church, Balcaloa, or however you say that, in Timoto, Archer Flavian. Those don't exist. And trust me, I spent many, many, and I know many of you that have done this, have spent a lot of time going through book after book and PDF and PDF after PDF, and it's not there. This is fake. It's fake. And one of the reasons I want to bring that out to us is so that we can be informed to not present something that's wrong as truth. Because we shouldn't present something as being true when we know it's not. Okay, So we need to move past that and understand that we do not have a church-by-church secession that we can show in history of this church to this church to this church, but it doesn't matter. Because what is important is what Jesus said. And he said it was there, and it will be there. Okay? So I say that just so that we can be informed and not spread something that's not true. Okay? Um, so that brings us to handout number two. And handout number two starts with the establishment up to the year 500. Now, the first thing on your sheet there is just kind of a breakdown of Acts 1 through 28. We know that in the opening chapters of Acts that they select a replacement for Judas, and they select Matthias. And um, then we have the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was not when the church was organized. Pentecost was a day that the Spirit fell upon the church. They were empowered. There was a great revival. And um, their work, in a way, we can say, came very real 
to them. They were tarrying there, and when the Spirit fell on them in such a way that they, A, were comforted that their Savior had left, and the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, fell upon the church and worked in such a mighty way, and it really propelled the church work in a way that um, they knew that they were the church of a living God. Okay? And there's lots of other things that can be said about that. Um, Acts 4, we get into the banning of the gospel and, and, and the Jews and um, persecuting. Uh, deacons were chosen out in Acts 6, the stoning of Stephen. We go all the way down through here into the works and the missionary chapters where we have Paul and others going out from the church preaching the gospel and spreading like that, like that handful of corn shaking like Lebanon. It just exploded. Um, the, the one I do want to bring particular mention to um, is, of course, when Peter went to the household of Cornelius. That is important to us because the majority of us, if not every single one of us, we don't have Jewish blood. We are natural Gentiles, meaning that we don't have any ancestry that goes back to the Jewish nation. And when Peter went there to the household of Cornelius, that opened up the gospel to the Gentiles and the church to the Gentiles when he baptized them and organized them and his household there into a church, and that opened up and we were grafted in. And that is a beautiful picture for us. If it were not for that occurrence, we wouldn't be here. That's where we get our beginnings as a Gentile nation that through his love he cleansed, us, he cleansed us and told them, don't call anything that I have cleaned unclean. And we were saw fit to be included into the church as a people. Beautiful picture. Uh, we go into Paul. Paul ends up at Patmos and etc. Okay? Now, one of the questions that I always had studying Baptist history is what happened to the church at Jerusalem? Because the church at Jerusalem is where it started, but after about a hundred years or so, you never hear anything particular about the church at Jerusalem. And I wanted to know why, because I didn't know. So I started studying, and of course, you know, anybody in the late 20th and early 21st century, the first place you go to is Wikipedia, right? Well, that is where I go to first, because you can go to Wikipedia, and it usually gives you a couple of references, and then you can go to the references and find out what the truth is and not trust Wikipedia. But, so I got started, and the church at Jerusalem grew. But we have to remember that there was a lot of civil unrest at Jerusalem. During the times of Christ, we know that we had a Roman governor 
and then you also had the Jewish courts, and so you had two parallel governments in the land. And those two parallel governments didn't always get along. And even amongst the Jews, they constantly fought and argued over who was going to control the synagogue, who was going to control the courts, who was going to do this and that. There were four sects, according to Asubius, and I never have been able to pronounce his name. There were four sects of Jews, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and a third group called Zealots. And what the zealots were, and if you go back, we know that one of the apostles was Simon the Zealot. The zealots were a political group that wanted not to be under the control of the Romans and wanted Jerusalem to be controlled by the Jews because God had promised them that land. It was their land by birth. Okay? Well, right after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Rome began to experience upheaval in their culture. And there were these many revolutions that broke out. They broke out in Rome, they broke out in Jerusalem, and all across, and if you look at your map, you can see where the Roman Empire was. And basically, it surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. And... When this broke out, the zealots saw an opportunity to get what they wanted. So Rome pulled their soldiers out from the far-reached areas of the Roman Empire to put down the revolution in the capital city of Rome. Okay? So the presence of the Roman soldiers had diminished there at Jerusalem. So the zealots... They got all of their buddies together, they made a militia, and they took control of Jerusalem. Now, Rome looked at the Christians at this point in time, they basically considered them just another sect of Jews. But now the Christians knew that if Rome left, what was going to happen to them? Because they had already begun to experience the persecution of the Jewish government. They stoned um, Stephen. Paul had letters for their imprisonment. So the church there knew that if they stayed in Jerusalem, that they were probably going to end up getting killed. So they evaded or left Jerusalem to escape with their lives. They went to a city named Pella which is uh, not far outside of Jerusalem. And all of this happened in 66 AD. The zealots, or the Jews, kept control of Jerusalem for four years. On August 30th, 1700, the Roman army had already put down the rebellion at Rome, and they were coming back to Jerusalem. When they got there and found that the Jews had taken over and had laid siege to the city, they went in, basically destroyed the city, and in retribution for the zealots and the Jewish people taking over control of Jerusalem, 
they ransacked the second temple. So this is when the second temple was destroyed. It was 70 A.D., and the early Jerusalem church stayed at Pella. They were dispersed. They were basically living off of whatever they could find, and the church kind of just fell in disrepair. Um, we would say they disbanded. Now, eventually the Catholics would go back into Jerusalem and they would set up a Catholic church and call it the Church of Jerusalem. But it's not the church that Jesus established. That church went to Pella and just kind of faded away. Okay? And that's why we don't see... Um, Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem being such a factor in this early history because it was weakened. And part of the reason it was probably weakened was because of the missionary efforts that it did. People were constantly coming and going and constantly going out. And um, that much missionary effort will put a strain, as we're going to see throughout time, on that body. And sometimes their children live on but the mother church falters because of so much coming out of them, okay? Now, <clears throat> something happened very early. In the first 100 years, the church begins to spread. It begins to grow. And by the time the New Testament closes, there are as many as 34 churches or arms of churches mentioned in the New Testament. Those 34 churches themselves over the next 50 years were amazing at missionary efforts. And the church just began to spread like wildfire all over the Roman Empire. And they were converting not only Jewish people, but they were converting pagan Romans who were hearing the gospel and had heard these tales of this man named Jesus and heard the gospel and would come under conviction and be saved. And the thing that happened with these Roman people, many of them were soldiers. When the Roman soldiers become, when they hear the gospel and get saved, they can no longer be a Roman soldier. And in order to profess that you were a Christian, if you were a Roman soldier, you had to give up everything. You gave up houses, lands, your position, whether you were um, high in the army or whether you were a lowly private, you could no longer be a Roman soldier if you professed Christianity. But they did it by the droves to go in to the church after hearing the gospel, getting under conviction, and being saved. Now, there are two sets of heretical doctrines that start during this time. And if we go to 3 John, the first chapter... Beginning in the ninth verse. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, 
who love to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbid them that would and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now, what Diotrephus wanted to do, or what he actually did, was he wanted control. He wanted power. He wanted preeminence. Preeminence being um, he was arrogant, and he wanted the power and attention that came with being up front, big and bad, so everybody could see him. So much so that he lorded over the church, even to the extent that when the apostles would try to, or the disciples would try to come and preach, he wouldn't even let them in the pulpit, per se. He rejected them, okay? Now, 1 Peter 5 and 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Our pastors are under shepherds. They are first off beneath Christ because Christ is the head and the lead of His church. Each local, individual, um, visible body as its head has Jesus Christ, not a preacher. Not a deacon board, not a particular member. It is Christ. But there were men in the early church, even before the close of the gospel, who were trying to take control of and direct the workings of the church themselves. And we go over to Revelations. And we see in the second chapter of Revelations that there's a group called the Nicolaitans. Jesus says that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that I hate. Now, lots of people have lots of ideas about what the Nicolaitans were. Um, and this is a Davidism. So I'm going to tell you up front that this is my opinion. Uh, I think it's pretty supportable. But if you have a different opinion, we're not going to fall out because lots of preachers and writers that I like to read after have varying opinions on this, okay? But if you take the word Nicolaitans and you go back to the Greek and you break it apart, it is a compound word that comes from Nico, which means to conquest or conquer, and Laos, which means people. And I'm persuaded that this was quite the same that we were seeing in 3 John, that it was people who were trying to control the church and set up their control of one person over individual bodies. And not only over individual bodies, but over groups 
of churches, which is what we're going to see happens. So the first set of twins is a change in church government and the universal church theory begins to be propagated within the Lord's church. Within the Roman Empire, there were, of course, these towns that were larger than the other towns. Same thing's true today. Um, if, if there is an organization that is in Gallatin, most likely they're going to have more members than the organization in Westmoreland because there's more people to draw from, right? Well, that's what happened with the early churches. Those churches that were in um, Athens and Antioch, Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, um, Rome, those churches grew faster than the little country churches on the outside of town. And these churches, they would elect a preacher, and that preacher so often became like Diotrephus in 3 John. He began to get the big head, and he thought he was something. And because he had control, even though he should have never had control in the first place, of the larger body of people, he began to put pressure on the little churches around about him. Okay? So they began to call these churches metropolitans because they were in the metropolitan areas. And the bishop or the pastor of these larger churches before long began to send their cronies out to pastor the little church in the country and putting pressure on the little church that you're going to call this guy for pastor because he's who I think you need. Okay? And what happened was church government began to crumble. And I suspect... Now, this is another Davidism. I haven't really found history to prove it, but just knowing men and the way that man works all throughout time, I'm sure there was probably a little money that helped lubricate this transaction. The big church having more money, the country church not having as much money, probably needing help with stuff, the big church would give pressure and say, if you don't do this, we're not going to help you. And the little church began to bend and do what the big church wanted them to do. Now that's simplified, but in jest, that's what happened. Okay? Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome. Now remember, 150 years later, the church at Jerusalem is not the same church that Jesus set up. This is the church that the Catholic church set up, okay? Those were the big major churches that began to flex their muscles and say, you need to do what I tell you to do. These churches that succumbed to them, they gave up their authority to the preacher or the pastor of Rome. And what happened was they changed their church government. No longer were those churches 
local, private, individual churches that had authority, but they worked and listened to what the, not the church at Jerusalem did, or the church at Rome did, but what the pastor of Rome told them to do. These churches no longer had a democratic form of government. They had a hierarchy, and the deacons and elders of the church would select the pastor. And that pastor would just get more and more power. Okay? Now, we see this from time to time today. When one church gets, gets to really booming and throughout our history, we've seen it where one church wants to bully everybody. Well, we're an independent body. We don't have to be bullied. Every church is a self-sufficient entity. Now, is it good for a church to be by itself without fellowship with others? No. It needs that. But what happened here is they gave up their identity to run with the crowd and to fall under that bishop or that preacher, pastor of these metropolitan churches. So within a hundred years, the church has lost its form of government. The true church, though, did not. During this time, there were other country churches, maybe a bad use of the word, but they refused to listen to the church at Rome or the church at Antioch or the church at wherever, and they continued to function the way that they had functioned ever since they were organized. Okay? So we have a change of church government. Now, the issue that we run into is if the church at Rome is controlling this local body over here, that doesn't work because we have a doctrine that each church is congregational. Well, if you're making the rules... How do you fix that? You change the rules. And that's what they did. So all of a sudden, a man by the name of Ignatius, who was the pastor of Antioch, he gets together with the five large metropolitan churches, and they come together, and it's the um, Council of Nicaea in Rome, and also the Council of Constantinople, which was 381. Nicaea was 325. They get together in these two locations and they both come up with the same decision. The five big churches are more important than the other churches and we are a universal body. This was a brand new thought. But he said, no longer is the church a local, independent, visible body of baptized believers, but they decided that the church was a universal, invisible society of believers. With that change now, these church, what they call church fathers and church patriarchs can do whatever they want to with the property, with the people, with the pastors, or anything of these local churches around about them.
many of our ancestors at this time, this is when they said, we're done, we check out, we're finished, we're done with you, and they cut the door on them. And many of our people, which we're going to see, maybe not today, but we're going to see, said, we're not going to take your baptism, we're not going to let your preachers in, we're, we're done. Because they felt they lost the doctrine, especially with the next set of twins. So we lose the congregational government. The church becomes a, they actually define the church, let me read this, one holy, catholic, apostolic body, is what they said, instead of local visible bodies. It was one big body. Over time, the universalists, the Catholics, in the hierarchical government, they began to realize that if you're going to sustain the structure that they had established, you need more people. And this happens in a lot of our churches through history where they began to grow at such an extent that they began to set up a, a they need finances. They began to set up a budget and they need money to support that budget. And if you have a budget, you have to have people to support how much money you're spending. Same thing happened. And there was a man by the name of Cipron, Cyprion, who was the pastor of the church at Carthage in 248, 249 is when he started. And Cyprion began to preach that salvation was not a heart work, but it was through works that we are saved. And the work that he preached that saves us was baptism. Now this started off with him saying that you have to have an experience of salvation, but if you want to go to heaven, you must be baptized. We're going to hear the same song and dance 1,800 years later with the Campbellite movement. So he starts off saying, you still got to be saved, but if you want to go to heaven, you must be baptized. But over years... This doctrine spreads, and they completely leave off the experimental knowledge of salvation and say you have to be baptized. So baptismal regeneration becomes the doctrine of the Catholic Church. They end up getting together again, having another council, and they invite like 1,800 people preachers or pastors to come. Only 300 show up. None of the opposition shows up because they've already cut them off. And at this council, they decide that, you know, baptism is the right way to go. It's what is essential for salvation. But then there's a question that arises. If baptism is what saves a man... When does he need to be baptized? Well, 
you can come up with a lot of answers, but the most logical response that you're going to get is as soon as possible. If baptism is what saves you, we need to get these people baptized as soon as we can. So they get back together. They're talking about this. And they decide that it's appropriate that if babies are born, if humans are born with original sin, then they need to be baptized as soon as possible to wash away their sins. Because we don't want our babies to die and go to hell. Now, at this point in time, they believe that if you died without baptism, that you were going to hell. Today, that's not the case. Today, they believe you go to purgatory, which is also a damnable sin. It's a heresy. There's no such a thing. Okay? So, the Catholics began to baptize infants. Now, sprinkling did not come along for several hundreds of years. At this point in time, they literally took three- and four-day-old babies, in many cases to the creek or to a basin, and immersed them in water. There are accurate accounts from Catholic people of this time that record these priests taking newborn babies out in the middle of rainstorms and floods and trying to baptize babies in creeks, going down and coming up with their hands empty. And it took hundreds of years of them drowning thousands of babies before finally they decided, you know, maybe we don't need to baptize them in the creek. Maybe we can just sprinkle them. Because one sin will always lead to another sin. And I don't know what preacher said it that I heard, but sin is just like toothpaste. Once you get it out, you can't get it back in. And it just grew and grew and grew. Now, the other thing that's actually a little humorous in a way, they didn't stop at baptism. Because if we look at, if you find a church and you find one of the two ordinances that's got problems, most likely both of them are going to have problems. They went so far as not only to do infant baptism, but to do infant communion. They would take the baby, they would take the bread, they would soak it in the water, and then put it, uh, not the water, the wine, and then put it in the baby's mouth. Now, the Greek Orthodox Church, they still baptize infants with full immersion, and they still offer infant communion. Catholics don't. Now, several priests of the time, it's recorded, even in the Catholic Encyclopedia you will find this, their argument was that when we are offering infants the Lord's Supper, communion, we're spilling too much wine. So they stopped giving the babies wine and for a long time would just give them the bread. 
And then they even got to the extent where they said, it's costing us too much wine to give to the entire congregation. So they stopped giving the wine to everybody and just gave the wine to the deacons and the presbyters and all the way up their hierarchy because they were wasting too much wine. Well, most likely because they didn't want the congregation to drink it because they were having a party that night and they needed it. And we're going to talk about how that was literally what was going on. Okay? Now, we may stop and think it's hard to believe that these people would go so far in 250, 300 years. But you also have to remember that these people that were in the early church were Jewish previously, most of them, or they were pagan before that. When we look at this and when we look at all of the things that the Catholic Church began to do, everything that they do is to appeal to the pagan masses that were around them. The pagan ceremonies, when you had a baby, was exactly this. You took, and Orchard does a wonderful job. If you have Orchard's history, he does a great job of explaining this. But the Norse religion, if you watch Vikings, you know, they've got that guy on there that tells the future or whatever, according to them. And what they would do is that when a baby was born, they would take it to the local oracle, they would present the oracle to him, or the baby to him, he would look at the baby to determine whether or not it was healthy. If it was healthy, he would look at the father and ask him the baby's name. He would give the oracle the name, the oracle would decide whether or not that name was good enough, then the oracle would take spit from his mouth, and put it in the mouth of the baby, and then he was fine to grow up in society. If the oracle decided the baby was unfit, the baby was left out in the cold to die. That is very reminiscent of what the Catholics were doing. Because when they would baptize the infants, that's when the baby got its name. And then you also have communion with putting the wine and the bread inside the baby's mouth. So a lot of these things that the Catholic Church began to do was solely to appeal to the masses so more people would come in. Because they needed more people in order to supply the funds to cover their budgets. And we're going to see that these metropolitan priests these metropolitan areas, they began to fill their coffers bigger than anything that we can even comprehend. Bill Gates has nothing on what the Catholic Church had and probably still has. But it began to grow. They took control and they began to change anything that questioned what they were doing they would just strike it off the book and make up a new rule. Okay? So, next week, we will start back with martyrs. And from martyrs, we will get started with the monetists. 
the Tertullianists, the Novatians, and that's when we really get into some persecution, some really sad events that happened in our Baptist history. I want to thank you for your attention. Does, is there anything at all, any questions or anything that someone wants to say? Well, David, I had one uh, point of clarity maybe. Yes, sir. On this erroneous secessional issue, you yes. have there some references to see these books. Is that part of this list? That's, that's part not, of that that's list. That's not your... That's not okay. mine. Okay. Thank you. And so if you will go through that, for example, Neander's church history is a real history. It's about nine books, and they're on my bookshelf at school if you want to see them. But they, it has n nowhere within it is Timto and Balcaloa ever mentioned. Then you go down the uh, Nolan, somewhere on there there's a Nolan that's mentioned. There is a Baptist history by Nolan, but it's a Kentucky Baptist history. And that definitely has nothing to do with the Alps, because he doesn't go past Kentucky, okay? Um, and I know some of you, this is a surprise because you've been presented that list as being true and I don't want it to be offensive to you that it's not true, but I can't stand up here and try to say I'm teaching Baptist history and not tell you it's not true. Because if there's one thing, and, and I'll say this now that you got me started again, <laughs> There's one thing that I'm going to really strive. The good, the bad, and the ugly, we're going to talk about. Because if we're going to truly know Baptist history, we've got to be honest about it. Because I'm going to tell you, the Church of Christ, the First Baptist, the Catholics, they know our history. And if we go and we start talking to them about some of the fairy tales that we tell ourselves, we're just going to show them that we don't know what we're talking about. So when we go through this, there are some things that are going to hurt our feelings. But we just have to admit that we've done some things that we're not proud of, but that doesn't mean we need to do them again. Just because they did them in 1840 or 1920 or 1260 doesn't make it right for us to do it again. And that's what I hope we learn out of this. Anything else? If not, we hope that you're able to come back next week. We will meet at 7 o'clock. Uh, remember me and Corey will be going to uh, outside of Richmond, Virginia to preach at Upper Sponsylvania um, Sunday. Brother Greg's going to Arkansas, uh, Missouri, where John's at. So Brother Greg's going to Missouri. Um, so y'all remember him. Uh, remember the mission. Remember that we've got lots of churches represented here tonight. And let's remember all of them and remember each other. Remember Willard. Remember Drake's Creek. Andy, where are you a member at now? Antioch. Antioch. Remember Antioch. I, I knew that, but it, was, it wasn't sticking with me. And let's remember each other. And um, <laughs> Spring Creek. Yeah, I started it. Now I got to get everybody. Now I got to get everybody. I'm sorry. <clears throat> so let's, let's remember everybody that is here. That's the re Hayesville. That's the reason you don't ever start doing that, because you know you've got to leave somebody out. 
thank y'all. Remember us next week. If you can't be here, make sure that uh, if you are able to come, bring somebody with you. We'd love for uh, the house to be full. And if there's nothing else on anyone's heart, those that are seated, if you will stand together, we're going to ask Brother Ronnie if he would to dismiss us, please. Thank you for listening to this episode of Church History. We'll talk to you next time.